Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 22. We'll read verses 14 through 20. Luke 22, beginning at verse 14, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. When the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down with the twelve apostles with him. Then he said unto them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. When administering the Lord's Supper, it's routinely acknowledged that this is not the table of any particular visible church, but it's the Lord's table. Jesus is the host's. That's what I say in administering the Lord's Supper as I call people to account and identify for them that this is not the table of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. And so if there are professing Christian believers baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and members of another fellowship that professes that Jesus is the Savior and they're here visiting with us, this is the Lord's table. And we extend that benefit to all who are uh, Christians to partake of the Lord's table together. It's not limited to one particular church. Now, um, that has been exploited by some churches and denominations who falsely claim to have exclusive rights to the Lord's Supper. You need to be aware of that. And those who claim that exclusive right are not uh, faithful to what Scripture teaches us. Also, when I say that Jesus is the host of the Lord's Supper, I want to give you a disclaimer I am not using that word host the way Roman Catholic dogma uses it. For Roman Catholic dogma has hijacked that word and has tried to uh, redefine it in terms that Jesus' uh, body and blood are literally, physically in the bread and uh, in the cup. That they change into uh, the body and blood of Jesus. And they call that the host, that Jesus is hosted in those elements. That's not what I'm saying. And I hope this will become clear as we look at the narrative here in the Gospel of Luke. It's also carried on in the other Gospels as well, which I'll make mention of. And that is, Jesus is the Master. Jesus is the one who invites. Jesus is the one who receives. Jesus is the one who sets the menu. Jesus hosts the Lord's Supper. And we, are, we come by invitation to uh, fellowship and to commune with Him. That's what I mean. And so the Apostle Paul gives the most explicit directive to the visible church for observing the Lord's Supper as received from the Lord himself with the basic words of institution and allowing for faithful observing as often as we do that we also publicly witness to the gospel. Now you're familiar with that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We use it often when we come to the Lord's uh, table. So part of the Apostle Paul's correction, warning, and theological primer for the godly observing of the Lord's Supper is to discern the Lord's body and blood by faith. That's where 
he is dealing with this, in, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, for corrections to the abuses that were taking place in the church at Corinth, a visible local church, a particular church, but one where there were abuses going on about the Lord's Supper. And he warns them, you're bringing judgment upon yourself by your abusing the Lord's Supper this way, by violating what Jesus said, what we receive from the Lord. He says, the Lord's Supper is not a dinner party. You have houses to have your dinner parties in. You can invite your friends. This is not your supper to invite your friends and to exclude others. That was happening in the church at Corinth. There were cliques of people that were getting together as they had the Lord's Supper and they were making it a dinner party for their particular clique and for their particular group. And others were being excluded. And to the extent that some were uh, unable to contain themselves and were even getting drunk like a dinner party. And, And Paul says that offends the Lord. Jesus is the host. It's His table. It's His supper. He sets the rules. He invites the guests. They come on His terms. He's the one who identifies the menu. And you need to examine yourselves before you come to the Lord's supper as to whether you discern the Lord's body and blood. Now, a lot of people take that the wrong way and think, oh, I'm too ho- I- I'm troubled with my sin and I'm just too holy to take the Lord's supper. So I won't take the Lord's Supper. That's not what Scripture says. It says to examine yourself, to confess your sin. Don't exclude yourself. Do you know excluding from the Lord's Supper is a judgment? We call that the highest judgment in the visible church that we can render is to excommunicate someone from the Lord's Supper until they repent of their sin. So to exclude yourself willingly from the Lord's Supper is a stubborn resistance to repentance and self-examination. And Paul says, examine yourselves. Discern the Lord's body and blood. That's another application for why we have communicant members. A child who is born into a covenant family, who is raised with the covenant privileges, having received baptism and growing up in the church, doesn't automatically come to the Lord's Supper. They must be able to discern by faith. We don't put an age limit on that. When a, when a child can give testimony of their faith in Christ. They're received as a communing member. Doesn't matter what age they are. What matters is they can discern by faith and can testify to that the Lord's body and blood. They're not confused about the symbols here. They're not saying, oh, that's really Jesus' body and that's really Jesus' blood. No, they can say, I know that that symbolizes who Jesus is as the God-man. He was like me in his true flesh and blood. He was a real human But he was unlike me, and his blood was not tainted with original sin. And he never sinned. And because he never sinned, my sins can be forgiven. I can't tell you the the delightful times that I've had as a pastor, and I'm sure the elders would agree with me, when children have come and have given testimony of their good faith to discern the Lord's body and blood, that they have given good faith of their testimony that Jesus is their Savior. We rejoice in that. We don't require that they uh, recite every uh, answer to the catechism. We don't ask them to, tell, to name us every book of the Bible. We don't give them other tests. We believe what the Lord Jesus said and through his holy apostle that they can examine themselves and that they can give a good testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something we should all rejoice in. So Paul writes to us, And before he got into the discussion in 1 Corinthians 11, I don't know if you remember this, but in 1 Corinthians 10, he's already introduced this. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. 
The cup of blessing. Now, that's where we get the word Eucharist. Eucharisto. It means bless and blessing. So if you ever heard, hear the Lord's uh, Supper referred to as the Eucharist, biblically, that's uh, bona fide. In good faith, it is a blessing. But we have to be careful what may have been added into that when people talk about the Eucharist. What do you mean? Let's, let's keep it biblical. But that's what uh, Paul says here. The cup of Eucharist. The cup of blessing which we bless. When, when I pronounce the words of institution and when I pray as example of the Lord Jesus, that is invoking a blessing from God and that is pronouncing a blessing to you who partake in faith. The cup of blessing we bless. Now note what he says here. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Not the transubstantiation. Not the change of one substance into another substance, but rather in faith, it is a fellowship, it is a communing, it is a coming together. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. Here is the blessing. It's the blessing that we commune by the effectual work of the blood of Christ. Jesus isn't re-sacrificed. Once and for all, he's done what uh, pleased the Father and what sealed our redemption. Jesus doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. And so that's why Paul says it is a communion in the blood of Christ. The cup is blessed, symbolizing to us the benefits that we have through Christ and his shed blood. Uh, John tells us the chief of those benefits is that our sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How? By the blood of Jesus That's how we are forgiven. And so it is a cup of blessing. And the bread which we break. Paul doesn't stop there. He says the the bread that we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now in grammatical form, Paul is simply not restating the blessing part. He's already stated that as the preface. The bread that we break. It's also the bread of blessing. It's called elliptical uh, grammatical form. So the bread which we break. Is it not the communion? of the body of Christ. It's not the transubstantiation. It's not changing of the substance of the bread into the body of Christ. No, it is a communion. We are communing. We are in real fellowship with the Lord Jesus more so than that bread is to our body. That's the wonder that we go beyond the physical. We go beyond the limited senses that we have. And we receive by faith the promise of the Lord. That we have a communion with him that goes beyond the limitations of our body and of our time. And that's we receive by faith that we have a union with the Lord Jesus Christ of which the Apostle Paul says we are one bread and we are one body for we all partake of one bread. Symbolically, you'll see that I break the bread and all the pieces that are in the, um, the plate come from that one original piece of bread. And so we're all taking of the same loaf. And Paul is saying, as an illustration to us, we, though we are individuals, and though we are saved and have a new name and are known by the Lord, for who we are, we have been reselfed in Christ. We're a new creation. We're a new creature. We're born again. We're a child of God. And all of that, he says, here's a beautiful illustration. We're all part of the same loaf. We're all part of the same loaf. The communion, the togetherness, Uh, even the term leaven is used in the Old Testament. Sometimes Jesus used it in reference to the permeating of the whole loaf as the the kingdom of God. 
In the Old Testament, the reason that unleavened bread was used in the Passover was because they were in haste. God says, you don't have time for the bread to rise because I'm getting you out of there. And so from the Passover, we've taken those two elements that Jesus gave us. He left all the other ones, the Paschal lamb that was roasted, the uh, 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 bitter herbs, the different cups of wine that were used, and the, the old covenant catechism that was employed in the Passover. All that's done away with. All of that is fulfilled. We don't need to revisit that. Jesus took two elements, the bread and the cup. And with them, he inaugurated a new Passover, a better Passover, the Lord's Supper. He is the host. He's the one who invites us. He's the one who receives us on his terms, by his invitation. He's the one who sets the menu. And he says, all you need is this piece of bread and this cup. And they tell you who I am. And when you do this, together, you're a part of something more than yourselves and the promise of God. And by faith, you are in the body of Christ. And as such, you witness to the world. Why are they doing that? In olden days, there was an, uh, an argument. Uh, there was a false charge against Christians that they were cannibals because they would eat the body and the blood of Jesus. They were saying, no, no, you don't understand. This is just bread and this is just wine. It represents to us that Jesus is the fulfillment as the Lamb of God. And so we proclaim to the world, gives us an opportunity to tell them what this is about. We wouldn't know what this was about unless Jesus identified it for us. And so Jesus tells us what this Lord's Supper is. Jesus identifies for us what it means. Jesus gives us the words of institution. Jesus invites us on his terms. Jesus sets the menu. Jesus is the host. And by faith, he is here with us, more real than this bread and this cup are to our physical senses. That's what I call to you, beloved, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Don't get tied up in the, the superstition. Receive the blessing. Do you doubt that this is bread? You've heard me say it many times. It's not a slice of apple. It's not a slice of pizza. Do you doubt that this is wine? It's not apple juice. It's not beer. This is unleavened bread, and this is either wine or juice. That's all it is. But it's symbolic of something far greater. That's what we embrace by faith. If you don't doubt that, why would you doubt the words of the Lord Jesus? And that's what I want to get back to this morning. <laughs> the words of the Lord Jesus. That's where we're supposed to be going here in uh, Luke chapter 22. So discerning by faith and spiritually communing together with one another and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper is by a new and living way. Not by the old body and blood of animal sacrifices. Do you get that? By a new and living way, not by the old dead way of animal sacrifices, of animal blood and of animal bodies. By a new and living way, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the wonder and glory of his resurrection. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to it carefully. Therefore, brethren, all of us Christian believers... Having boldness, having confidence to enter into the holiest. Where is the holiest? In heaven. The writer of the Hebrews has already established that. Not the, not the holy place on earth in the temple. That's over and done with. But the true holy place, the holiest of holies in heaven where God's throne is. And the, the throne of grace. 
where Jesus intercedes for us. Having confidence and boldness. Who could dare think you could go into the presence of God? If you really think about who God is. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have an audience there because of who Jesus is. We have an audience with God the Creator, who is our Savior. Having confidence and boldness to enter the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. Not an old, dead way. A new and living way which he consecrated. He secured. He established. He finished. Consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The glorified humanity of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Do you hear what the writers of the Hebrew is saying here in verse 10? He's saying it is by the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus glorified that we have audience into the presence of God. And that's why Jesus tells us to give us that confidence and to give us that assurance in that consecration. He says, I'm the host. You come by my invitation. So along with the commonly recognized words of the Lord's Supper, the words of institution, which we often repeat, which I'll repeat again this morning, Jesus also gave a promise of his hosting a new and better Passover in the kingdom of God. And this is what I want you to pay attention to from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 18. I have them in your notes there. I read it already this morning. Follow it along very carefully now in light of the comments that I've already made. Jesus said to them, with fervent desire. Now that's a reduplication, kind of follows a Hebrew idiom, with, the de- with desire of desire. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it, the old Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Let's pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. Uh, There's abbreviated statements in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark where Jesus talks about he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until it is new in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And then this is something... I'm. Don't know if you've made the connection here, but I want you to to do it. I want you to go home and read it this afternoon. But the Apostle John records Jesus' discourses at the Lord's Supper in the upper room about the new and better way of his presence and the new covenant union of all believers with the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit of truth. Do you remember John chapters 13 through 17? See, in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then they fall into a dispute about who's going to be the greatest among them. And Jesus tells them some of them are going, one's going to betray him, and they'll all forsake him. But then he goes on in chapter 14 with, I am the vine, and you are the branches. You're, you are united to me. Your life in me. He talks about the coming of the paraclete, the comforter advocate, the Holy Spirit of truth that will lead them in all truth and will confirm for them the things that Jesus has said that they will better understand by a new and living way. And he elaborates on that in terms of the peace that he brings, not like the world. And that he will ever be with them in a a better way, even to the point that Jesus says this, you'll do greater works than I have done. 
Doesn't that throw us for a loop? Because people want to assign the greater works of Jesus to be raising the dead or healing the sick or or going into some kind of a fantasy mode. And Jesus says, no, those are not the great works. Honoring the Father. Witnessing to His good news that He gave His Son for your sin's redemption. Those are the greatest works of all. We are told that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. A lot of people get that wrong. You know what a lot of people say? Oh, the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. No. (laughs) If you'll look carefully, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that comes to repentance because the good shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep, even the one lost sheep. And the angels witness the rejoicing of God and the blessing of Jesus, the celebration of salvation. Jesus says, you'll do greater works than I have done because I ascend to my Father, and I will send you the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He will witness to all truth. And you will never be separated from me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You'll never be separated from me. I am with you in a new and better way, in a way beyond this physical, limited way that you have me here. You don't understand this, but you will come to understand it. I give you my peace. And I tell you that you're going to witness the glory that I had with the Father before the world was. And you're going to enter into that glory. And then Jesus went into prayer. You know John 17, don't you? Do you know that was at the end of the upper room discourses? I think it was probably before Jesus left the upper room. But anyway, uh, he prayed before he got to the Garden of Gethsemane. We know about his prayer there. But here he prays an intercessory prayer as the great high priest. And he prays not only for those believers, those apostles who were gathered with him, but he says, I pray for all who will believe in me throughout time. What? That we will never be separated? That we are united to him in a new and better way? And the apostle Paul elaborating on this says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Because Jesus prayed for us. Jesus does pray for us. Jesus makes intercession for us according to the will of God. Where? In heaven! In the holiest of all. In the presence of God. And we are carried there in him. And this Lord's Supper attests that Jesus is the host who says, I've invited you. You come on my terms. You come according to my will. You come identified by what I say. And I tell you this. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you in a way new and living not old and dead. I am with you in a way that goes beyond your physical senses and that you, by faith, can testify to to know it's greater than I could ever explain, but it is so. So the Lord's Supper is a covenantal pledge of Jesus fulfilling the old Passover by a new and better way in which he promises he will host the eating of the bread of communion and the drinking of the cup of communion in a spiritual reality that is greater than the physical body or the physical blood. Now I want you to note that Jesus implies that he will eat the bread and drink the fruit of the vine. Let me just make another comment here. Jesus implies that he will eat the bread and drink the fruit of the vine, not the physical blood and not the physical body. He implies that he will eat the bread And drink the fruit of the vine in the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom of God. 
Now, isn't that the real test here? That's the clue. When Jesus says, I will not eat this bread or drink this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you new in the kingdom of God. And it's commonly assumed that Jesus is speaking about the future second coming and the general resurrection at the end of time. But I want you to understand, that is imported into the text. Jesus isn't talking about some distant, unknown, undefined future. Jesus is talking about the newness that is with the kingdom of God realized and fulfilled. When did the kingdom of God come? What is the kingdom of God? And here I want you to consider an overview of what the New Testament scriptures teach us. Jesus fulfilling and inaugurating the new covenant by his person and work as Christ, the Son of God, advances the already and the not yet of God's plan of redemption. So there is that which has already happened in terms of what Jesus has fulfilled and what is now present with us in a spiritual reality, and yet it's not yet fully consummated. We know that. There is more to come by promise of the revelation of the Word of God, but that does not negate what has already been established and inaugurated. The kingdom of God is now and to be. We need to embrace that. And so, with a newly revealed dimension... Jesus says the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's manifest on earth as a new age. This is what the scriptures identify. This is the new age. This is the new time of gospel light chasing away the darkness. This is the new Israel. Not the old Israel, not the family of blood, but this is the family of faith that is the greater and the new Israel. It includes some of the old family of blood. The first believers were those who came out of Judaism to identify in Jesus the Messiah. He is the Christ of God. And from Judaism, they became Christians, followers of Christ, the Messiah, and the new covenant, the new Israel of God. And with the new Israel of God, there becomes a new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that is the heavenly bride of Christ and not the earthly city of covenant adultery. There is a new temple. The old temple is done with. The old temple has been destroyed. The old temple will never be rebuilt to the glory of God. If it is rebuilt, it will be an apostasy to turn away from Christ. But the new temple is a temple of living worshipers as living sacrifices. How that sounds like such a contradiction to the world. How can you be a living sacrifice? How can you be a living temple? The apostles write about it. Paul and Peter write specifically, Jesus told them, his disciples, you see this temple, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Jesus said, God is seeking true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth, not at Jerusalem, not at Gerizim, not in Rome, not in Constantinople or or modern day Istanbul. No, God is seeking true worshipers to worship him everywhere in spirit and in truth because there's a new temple that is not located and limited to geography. That new temple is a a temple of living worshipers as living sacrifices, not a physical building with dead sacrifices. And there's a new worship. That's one of the most powerful things that I could ever say to you. There is a new way of the uh, authorized worship of God in spirit and in truth, not in the condemnation of the letter of the law. There's a new heavens and a new earth. This throws everybody for a loop because everybody puts new heavens and new earth at the consummation. The consummation will come 
But the new heavens and the new earth have already been inaugurated in that there are present heavenly realities connecting Christian believers on earth to God's ordained means of grace in heaven. I have but this to say to you. Where is Jesus now? Yes, Jesus is here present with us by the Spirit. But Jesus is at the right hand of the glory of the Father. And he is before the Father in the heavenly throne of uh, holy of holies and the throne of grace. And what is he doing, beloved? He's making intercession for you and for me. He's subduing all his enemies and our enemies. The church is his kingdom, will never fail. The gates of Hades will not withstand it. Jesus' great kingdom is on the move and has been from the time that he inaugurated it. But it is not a kingdom of men. It is not a kingdom of earth. It is far beyond that in a new and living way. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus tells us the truth of God's word. Jesus intercedes for us as both priest and sacrifice in one. And Jesus rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. And we, beloved, are brought into his kingdom The scriptures say we are transferred, we are moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. So all of that to say to you, Jesus hosts this Lord's Supper. By his promise, he is here with us. He's not contained in the bread or the cup. They are symbolic and they're identified by his words of institution. But when Jesus rose from the dead, glorified and present, and identified, now he, with us, takes this bread and takes this cup. He offers it to us. And in union with him, we are more livingly united by faith than this bread or this cup are when they go into our body. I can't give you a more amazing description. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not the old covenant, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, not hiding our sin and making a pretense, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Does this unleavened bread have magic powers to make you sincere and truthful? It does not. Who has the spiritual power to make you truthful and sincere, the Holy Spirit of God. And when we take this Lord's Supper in faith, not hiding our sin, not trying to play games, but in sincere faith, accepting the truth that Jesus gives it to us, we receive the benefits of Christ unto eternal life. I do hope that you'll go home today and I highly encourage you to read the Gospel of St. John chapters 13 through 17 in connection with the Lord's Supper because with the upper room discourses that Jesus explains the new and living way of our communion with him.